is Cinephile. This is incredible. One of the best actors alive here in the studio, Billy Bob Thornton. Great to see you, man. The point of good acting is that you're supposed to be real. Be real. Great to have here on Cinephile Ice Cube, my new best friend. Yeah, yeah, man. Here's the man himself, Robert De Niro. Who can tell what a reaction will be to a film that nobody knows? Vigo Mortensen. It's one of those movies that when it finishes, you go, now what's going to happen? Big guest, Mark Wahlberg. Ted was one of those pivotal moments in my career, like Boogie Nights, where, you know, the subject matter just seems so ridiculous and absurd. Yet, when reading the script, you know, you never want to put it down. Cinephile. Cinephile. The Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. Oh, man. I just got finished saying how you have to be on point, Vogue. Is Jim Brackmeyer, and I completely punted that one. Apart from pulling off the unique trick of having us root for human extinction, war foregrounds a beautiful tension between the savage instinct for retribution and higher restraint, ironically fought within the heart of an animal. That's from Joshua Rothkoff of Time Out, his review of War for the Planet of the Apes, one of the films that we'll be reviewing. Thanks so much for joining us here on Cinephile. I'm Adnan Burke. I am recovering from a bout of strep throat. Strep throat, the decisive winner in this one-sided fight. Thankfully, the amoxicillin and Advil uh, helping to curb my ailment. For those, uh, Steve Oling in particular, one of our producers here, a friend of mine, is uh, skeptical of how ill I was. So the interview we taped with Tony Hale, which you'll hear momentarily, we, we could have been fancy and retract it because now my voice is a little stronger um, but Dan said that would be too labor-intensive, and I want – apparently Oli was skeptical of how bad my voice is. So you can see just how terrible I sounded and the fact that Tony Hale did not hang up on the interview because I would have thought if I was listening to somebody who sounded as hoarse as I did, I would have said, listen, this is painful for me to even listen to. I'm going to have to hang up the phone. Let's do this another time, right? Oh, it's bad. I'm surprised he didn't hang up. And let's just say, for the record, you're going to Williamsport tomorrow, so we didn't think we'd be able to post this pod. Yeah. I had fully prepared to do this podcast myself. I saw a terrible movie yesterday. I had a movie critic <laughs> quote to start. I got a Scorsese story. I got a you know actor showcase. I got everything ready to go. And you sound good, though, thankfully. But once you hear this interview with Tony Hale, you'll be like, all right. I get it. He shouldn't have worked. And then there's another interview with Jeremy Renner where you're on the phone and he's here. Yeah. So pick which one sounds worse. We're going to hear him. We're going to play them both. It's three different voices of mine. But you're right. That would have been a tremendous scenario. I texted Dan Wednesday. I said, I'm improving, but you may have to do the podcast. I mean, it really would have been glorious. He has notes here. He would have done the reviews, actor showcase, three words. I saw the film Atomic Blonde with Charlize oh. Theron yesterday. <laughs> Not that great. <laughs> Listen, we're squeezing in a review. See if you, oh, if my you God. Did the work. My Scorsese story is good. I can't wait. All right. This is going to be a combo podcast. If you put in the work, I think you deserve to at least have it rewarded. Um, by the way, thanks to all those who always listen to the last podcast. As always, go to iTunes. Give us a review. I rank my movies at a four Maple Leafs. Those are at a five stars. Leave a review for us as well. We appreciate it. Cannot wait for Steve Gutenberg to show up as Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman. I know Mike Diesenhoff, Pete Genesini are excited for that. As always, you know, I love other podcasts, and thanks to my dear friend, Jonah Carey. I was so happy to catch up with Jonah. You can always uh, read him, of course. Uh, he does so many things. CBS, Sports Illustrated. He was on MLB Network. He's now doing some stuff for Sportsnet. Uh, we're friends because he used to work with us here on Baseball Tonight. He's so smart when it comes to the game of baseball. He's a great friend, and he's really funny, and he's a fellow Canadian. So we knocked out a two-and-a-hook, two-and-a-half-hour podcast because we got hooked up in Miami when I was there for the All-Star Game. And he just released it. Here's the description that Jonah put. Jonah Carey chats for almost two and a hook with Adnan Verk of ESPN about the behind the scenes of baseball tonight, not being Keith Oberman, waving the Canadian flag, making good TV, their best and worst days. You always hurt the ones you love. Being a Muslim in the public eye. That's me, not Jonah. Censorship, versatility, contract negotiations, the end of the brain drain, being too nice, writing style, making pop culture recommendations, B plus, thick skin, ambition versus competitiveness, Joe Buck and Jack Buck, Hot Takes and the Future of Sports TV, Going to the Movies, What's Next in My Career, Hank Azaria and Brock Meyer, Self-Disclosure, and My Life Tips. Yeah, real quick, two and a hook, is that a Canadian thing? No, that's an Aaron Boone description because Baseball Tonight and Saturdays was on at 2.30 a.m. because it was after all the college football coverage. So Aaron Boone would call it two and a hook. 
So hence the expression. You get you know thirty like a. I get it. Yeah, I just know in, in Europe you say like half three. I don't know if it means two thirty or three thirty. Oh, okay. But it's a little weird over there. I thought that was a Canadian thing. All right, maybe Booney picked it up from his travails over in Europe. But make sure you check that out. Uh, it's a really fun podcast, and uh, Joan and I had a blast. Also, if you follow us on Twitter, of course, Cinephile ESPN. My own Twitter handle, Adnan ESPN, a glowing tribute to Dan Stanzik. It's something called ITK. Can you describe what ITK is, Dan, for everybody listening? Yeah, it's like an internal website that no one else outside the company gets where they just post things going on in the company. There's forums, which I don't think I've ever checked out. Uh, you know, For example, we have a company picnic coming up. So they're letting us know, hey, register for the company picnic. It's on this date. It's at this venue, which it always is, et cetera, et cetera. They interview some of the high ranking executives from time to time. You see a picture and an article. I don't know who works for them necessarily, but it's like an internal website, right? You would go yeah. there to like enter your time and all, and all that stuff. Right. I, I just, I wait for the day when you tell me, listen, I'm leaving my job as the producer of the behemoth that is Mike and Mike. I'm full-time dedicating myself to ITK. I mean, I do have a background in journalism, <laughs> so you would think that uh, I could end up there if this whole Mike and, well, the Mike and Mike thing, I guess, is changing. Yeah. But uh, that's a separate podcast, I think. Hopefully people check out the article. It's a really nice tribute to Dan. My goal was just to get him a promotion to producer, too. So, Genesini, if you're listening, please take that article and send it to the other bosses and get my guy promoted. Of course, whenever you, go ahead. Quickly. Um, so I'm on vacation and I get an email from this guy who works in PR and he says, yeah. hey, can you give me a quote? We're writing this thing on Adnan. What's it like to work with Adnan? I'm like, hey, like spot the internet. I'm in New Hampshire. Like, can I get back to you? He's like, oh, you're fine. <laughs> so I'd forgotten all about it. I come back for a few days. I'm like, oh, I was supposed to give that guy the quote. So I send him the quote, what, what it's like working with you. Simple quote. I'm like, I could probably do more if he needs more. Great. Yeah. He goes, do you have a picture of you two together? I go, no. He goes, why not? You guys work together all the time. I'm like, yeah, but we don't take pictures together. We work together. We see each other a lot. I'm like, hey, let's let's grab a <laughs> selfie. Like, no, I don't have any pictures. So when we taped the Tony Hale interview when you were, like, deathly ill and you'll hear it, they sent a photographer to take pictures of us because we don't have any otherwise. Which was an incredible moment. I just see Michael Skarka walk in, take pictures of you, and, and I knew what was going on, but I didn't know if you knew what was going on. And afterwards, you said, oh, they're doing an article on you. I'm like, no, no, it's about you. They asked me to name one person behind the scenes here at ESPN. I'm throwing the spotlight on you. And when they asked, do we have a picture? I said, well, there's one picture of me and Dan's in the background, which would have been a great egomaniacal thing for me to do. Here's a tribute to Dan Stanzik, and then it's just my face, and then out of focus in the background is Dan. I'm like, I'm the guy who really runs this thing. But there he is in the background. Would have been hysterical. But anyways, check it out. Of course, there's a backlash now because now people are offended I didn't mention them. Jake Del Moro, who's a baseball tonight graphics producer, easily the most jacked person I work with. He's upset he didn't get mentioned. Rob Lemley in a very passive-aggressive move, uh, group texting me and Mike Diesenhoff. They're both college football producers and college basketball as well, saying, why didn't Dee's get a mention? Listen, Dan and I go back. This is not just cinephile. This is six years ago, Sunday Night Baseball. He was my producer, the Doug Gottlieb show, ahead of its time. We Let's go just sell all those people to quote a movie, Talladega Nights, The Legend of Ricky Bobby. If you're not first, you're last. <laughs> exactly. Work on that. Uh, thanks as well. High Def Ninja. This is a nice letter I got here. Love the podcast, Cinephile. Amazing who you've been able to interview. I agree. Thanks to the talent office. You and Dan make a great team. I own a movie site with a forum community, HideFNinja.com slash community. Once again, HideFNinja.com slash community. Covering all the collector and special editions across the world and more. I'll spell for you too. H-I-D-E-F-N-I-N-J-A dot com slash community. We've started producing our own line of special editions as well. Here's a couple of them to enjoy. I'm not a huge horror fan as I'm more into Pacino, De Niro, pretty much everything else. However, these have just been the opportunities that came our way. Soon we'll be releasing Suspiria, which is a much more popular movie of Dario Argento. Hugo is amazing. I feel it's often forgotten. Take care. Keep up the good work. Thanks so much to our friends from High Def Ninja. So they sent me three DVDs, Dario Argento. He's a horror filmmaker. I've never actually seen any of his movies. So maybe, Dan, next time we'll auction them off for people next time. If you like horror movies, you'll probably love Dario Argento's movies. But as he mentioned, they do these special editions. He also sent me Spotlight. So the cover is great. It's like um, like almost one of the files that the reporters would have found in Spotlight. So it's really cool what these guys have done. So uh, as I was ailing, I watched Spotlight the other day to pick myself up. Dan and I did not list it in our favorite movies of the century, but I'm sure for you, as for me, it was close. I mean, I, I had it at 12, I believe. I tell you, I hadn't seen it since I watched it in the theater with uh, our friend Max Bredos. By the way, check out Max's podcast. He's such a good friend. Max and Herc. If you love soccer, you'll love Max's podcast. We're going to have him on here at some point to do his accents. But Max and I saw Spotlight together. I remember it came out in October. 
and we both thought it was great. And then when it, when it won Best Picture, it was such a, a, a welcome surprise. It only won two Oscars that year. It was for picture and for screenplay. If you'll recall, The Revenant won for director Alejandro González Inarritu. Leo, of course, won Best Actor. And I thought it was all right, but I thought there was times you, you could literally see Leo straining to win the Oscar. Look how much I'm suffering for my art. I would never watch The Revenant again or Spotlight. I was happy to watch it again. And I, and I watched it knowing that the, the critics of it pointed, oh, you journalism majors, you guys all just love this movie that's just parroting your industry. But I, I tell you. I don't know how Tom McCarthy did it. It's so engrossing because it shows the mechanics of journalism, which is a lot of these guys making notes, making phone calls. Ruffalo's eating bad pizza, and yet it makes it thrilling. Like, it's amazing. Like, at one point, Stanley Tucci says to him, are you married? And he says, yeah. And he goes, you are? He goes, but you're always working. He's like, yeah. He goes, it's kind of a sore spot. He's like, yeah. And you never see his wife once in the movie. All he's ever doing is working, chewing on pens, making quotes, but it's it's really important, and it's um, it's obviously idealistic. And for those who haven't seen it, it deals with the uh, Catholic Church and abuse, uh, the priests abusing children, which took place in Boston. And <clears throat> Spotlight is a specific division of the Boston Globe, and it's only four people, Michael Keaton, uh, Rachel McAdams, Mark Ruffalo, and the actor. I can never remember his name, but he's really good in it as well. There's four of them together working. Liev Schreiber is their editor who comes in, Marty Baron. So he's this Jewish editor who comes in who doesn't like baseball. One of the funniest scenes early on, he's reading Curse of the Bambino, famous book by Dan Shaughnessy. And Keaton goes, oh, it's a classic. He goes, oh, I don't, I don't much like baseball. I'm just trying to learn about the community. Because he's coming from New York and Miami. He's like, all right, so what's Boston all about? And later on, they're like, oh, so who's the Jew editor who doesn't like baseball who's now running Spotlight? And, and he's the outsider, but it takes a guy like him to say, hey, listen, I've, I've heard about this story. We should investigate this. And it's amazing that they can pull off a two-hour movie, which is and, – and, and I understand, especially for those – you know, Dan was raised Irish Catholic. I, I totally respect if you're Catholic. You know, I don't want to deal with that subject matter. But it, it, it doesn't focus as much on the abuse of the children as on the journalism process. It's, it's not to say there aren't some uh, cringeworthy scenes. It's certainly difficult when you imagine what some of these kids went through. But it really does focus on the journalism, right, Dan, rather than the victim. Yeah, absolutely. I, when I first heard that the movie was coming out, I was a little nervous to see it because of the subject matter. But that's not an issue at all. It's literally, as you're saying, it's more about the chase and the journalism and getting the story and being able to print the story and getting a source to say something on the record, et cetera, et cetera. Whole cast is great. John Slattery, of course, you know him from Mad Men. He's one of the editors in the movie. He's got that great sarcasticness about him, a little brusque at times. Obviously, Michael Keaton's really good. I love the scene later in the movie where he re- you know, reveals his own guilt about the fact that he didn't investigate the case years earlier when he wasn't working on Spotlight. Ruffalo was nominated for an Oscar. I was hoping he was going to win. If you'll recall, that year when they said Best Sporting Actor, the winner is Mark R- And I was like, oh, my God, it's Ruffalo. But it was actually Mark Rylance. He won for Bridge of Spies, who's fabulous in Dunkirk. But I would have loved to have seen Ruffalo win. He plays Mike Resendez. And one particular at the end is like an Oscar-worthy scene where he says, no, we've got to print this story. This could have been one of us. You don't understand what happened to these guys. For a movie in which there's not a lot of posturing, that's the one you know, so-called Oscar-worthy scene. And, of course, the guy I love. If he ever came to Yasmin, I'd be so thrilled. Stanley Tucci, I think, is just marvelous. I got some people tweeting me going, I don't even think Stanley Tucci's acting in that movie. Like, he is so good. Um, and he's one of the lawyers who first had investigated some of these crimes. But Tucci's amazing. He's got a scene with Ruffalo in which he says, you know, I'm Armenian. He goes, you know any other Armenians? And Ruffalo goes, yeah, Steve Kirchin, which is Tim Kirchin's cousin, by the way. If you ask Tim, a spotlight's a bit of a sore spot. I guess his cousin was much more involved in the case of the movie portrayed. So don't bring it up to Timmy. But he goes, yeah, Steve Kirchin. He goes, okay, well, there's two of us. Later on, he goes, what are you, Italian? And Ruffalo says, no, I'm Portuguese. He goes, oh, okay. And he goes, you know, they don't want us here. And I remember I asked Ryan Rosillo, he worked in Boston for 10 years. And he goes, that, that is the pinpoint essence of Boston. When, when Tucci goes, yeah, they don't want us here. He goes, they view us as outsiders. But let me tell you something, Mr. Resendez. If it takes a village to, you know, it takes a, a, a village to build one, it also takes one to, to destroy one. You know, he's, he's pointing out how this is obviously much a bigger case. Like this is, this is literally the entire city is under indictment because they go, the Catholic Church runs this city. You don't understand? They're Irish Catholics. Like nobody's going to be able to take these guys down, uh, especially a bunch of feisty journalists. But it's a terrific movie. Thank you once again to High Def Ninja for sending me it. It was nice to watch the movie again and a really cool cover as well. So make sure you check that out. Also, it is a happy birthday to Robert De Niro, one of my favorites. Make sure you check out the podcast we did with Bob. It was actually just about a year ago. I was in Williamsport for the Little League World Series, drove back in a hellacious trip with my family just to interview Bob. But he was everything and more. So happy birthday to Bob. May he give us many more great films. Of course, he's nominated for uh, an Emmy for Best Actor. Right now, he's second. He's right behind Riz Ahmed for the night of. But what a great race. Either going to be Bob going to win an Emmy for Best Actor or Riz Ahmed for the night of. John Turturro is also nominated in that category. Loved his performance. Uh, so we'll find out soon. The Emmy's just about a month away. If you go to goldderby.com, you'll see my predictions for the Emmys there as well.
I can't get over Dunkirk. Before we get to the reviews, I bought Joshua Levine's book. It's called Dunkirk, the History Behind the Major Motion Picture. I just can't get it out of my head. I haven't seen it a second time, but I just, honestly, I wanted to learn more about the history of it. So I'm going to read a few passages, and I'm going to get Dan's reaction, just to kind of give you more of an essence of what was happening here in the war at that time. In Blackpool, the country's favorite seaside resort, the diversions were equally British. One involved a woman named Valerie Arkell Smith. Masculine in appearance, Arkell Smith had spent years passing herself off as a retired Army colonel and had married an unsuspecting woman in the process. Following Arkell Smith's release from prison for making a false statement on her marriage certificate, an impresario signed her up to feature in a Blackpool sideshow. Billed as a woman who had recently had a sex change operation, Arkell Smith lay in a single bed while a young woman lay alongside her in another bed, the two beds separated by flashing Belisha beacons. The conceit was that the pair had recently married, but Arkell Smith had placed a 250-pound bet that for 21 weeks they would not touch one another. Spectators paid two pence to view the odd sexless bed show, shouting obscenities at the couple. Yeah, I don't know why you're reading that passage. <laughs> this this is what passed for entertainment at that time. <laughs> Here's another one for you. They're talking about how the people uh, you know who often were enlisted, uh, you know, very poor. The Elmstown study is interesting in relation to sex and marriage, revealing that it was a badge of honor among many boys to be sexually active. A boy who was known or believed to be a virgin is not respected. Most of the clique was known as the five F's. Find them, feed them, feel them, blank them, and forget them. Thankfully, not the credo of Dan Stancer. Here's another one from this, uh, <laughs> Attorney Harding. I don't want to sound vulgar or anything. He talks about a lot of the soldiers would go to brothels. And by the way, apparently there's a brothel in Dunkirk while all this was happening. What the girls used to do before you went in, they'd come out of a room and with a bit of a rag, she'd open her legs and wipe herself out. And she'd throw the rag down amongst the blokes waiting to go up. And there'd be a scramble for that piece of rag. When we get Christopher Nolan on, we got to ask why he didn't put that in the movie. <laughs> How about this story? Leonard Howard watched a similar situation escalate. A soldier was doggedly gripping the stern, and the sailor in charge ordered him to let go. The soldier kept hold of the stern, so the soldier shot him in the head. In Howard's view, this was the right thing to do, however awful it was to watch. There was such chaos on the beach that didn't stop them from keeping out. That's the other part of it, too. Imagine, like, oh, you're one of these soldiers, and one of these boats comes. It wasn't like there was an orderly. It was just a mad scramble. A guy gets shot not in the head. A boy of 18 numbered among the heroes of Dunkirk was a failure at school. Through ill health, he never won a prize in the classroom or on the sports field. But one day he told his father, I'm sorry I can never win any honors at school, but one day my name will be written on the honor of rule there. Uh, here's one more. This is just about the, the filming of the movie. Just had, uh, By the way, there's a couple of chapters just in the filming of the movie. Chris is loath, speaking of Christopher Nolan, he's loath to use CGI. There's a lot of art involved on set, a lot of full in the eye. On the biggest crowd days, there was 1,380 extras. And one of the production is talking about saying, you know, people think we're doing Dunkirk, but we've got 200 pairs of pants. What I meant was with the budget, we had 200 pairs of correct British ex- expeditionary force pants. In order to be close up, in other words, to see people, we could use 200 guys any given time. We have to pay a man to attend a costume fitting for this uniform, and they only had enough money to do two fittings each. So this is a movie about vast numbers of people, and we have 200 pairs of pants, two fittings each. You're going to have the same 400 guys in front of the camera all the time. You're going to see the same faces too often. I just kept repeating this in one context or another. This is 200 pairs of pants, guys. That's the movie we're making. That crazy to think he's like we've got to rotate these people because we've only got two hundred. You think that there's thousands of extras there? I thought this was a big budget summer movie. <laughs> two hundred pairs of pants. That's all we got. Uh, do you want to read the rest of this book, or can I give it away now? It's up to you. You can give it away now. All right. So I'll, I'll make this real easy. If you want this book, this is Joshua Levine's Dunkirk: The History Behind the Major Motion Picture. Just tweet us in who the cinematographer is of Dunkirk. Real easy. You can just do a Google search if you want. Respond to Cinephile ESPN. C I N E P H I L E ESPN for Christopher Nolan's film Dunkirk. By the way, also on GoldDerby.com, they've got the way too early Oscar odds. So right now, Best Picture. Predicting that Dunkirk is number two in the running. Number one is The Papers, which is Steven Spielberg's new film going to come out. Meryl Streep right now expected to win fourth Oscar for Best Actress. She plays the lead in the movie. Best Director is currently Christopher Nolan. And Best Actor on the way-too-early Oscar predictions list, 
Gary Olden, who plays Winston Churchill in the movie called The Darkest Hour, coming out this fall. So we'll see if those predictions end up true. But for those wondering, is Dunkirk going to be in the Oscar race? According to GoldDerby.com, yes, it is. Jeremy Renner is coming up momentarily. He talks about his new film, also um, just about the Avengers universe, uh, The Town, which is a movie that I love, and also but the fact apparently he's brilliant compared to all the other actors in the world. We'll also be talking to Tony Hale. I adore Arrested Development. He's going to talk to me about 10 minutes about Arrested Development, playing the role of Buster, also some questions about Veep. And also, he just worked with Clint Eastwood, so very cool with Tony Hale. Uh, Because my voice is ailing, we'll make these reviews uh, a little shorter than usual. So I saw the latest Planet of the Apes. Um, I just This is what I find most interesting about the movie, is that the apes are the good guys. Okay, like imagine in the apes universe, the apes <laughs> made a movie and they made themselves the bad guys and they made the humans the good guys. Like it's just such a strange alternative universe. But War for the Planet of the Apes, I think, is a successful summer blockbuster. It's directed by Matt Reeves. I'm giving it two and a half Maple Leafs. It's a little long, my usual pet peeve, two hours and 20 minutes. But what I liked about it is that for a blockbuster, it actually focuses on character over plot. And he spends a lot of time detailing what has happened to Caesar played by Andy Serkis, one of the highlights of the film. This actor, who's so good, of course, he played Gollum. My precious. And he's so good when it comes to doing these these characters, you know. The the art of the CGI in this day and age is amazing. Like, I mean, I can't imagine how the Planet of the Apes have been improved so much over the last couple of decades. Now when you watch it, like Andy Serkis playing Caesar, I mean, he looks like a human being. It's amazing. And, like, the way that they meld it together, you know, it, I mean, obviously, you know, apes and humans, there's a connection. But my point is, if you watch the movie, it's it's – the, the amount of close-ups and the amount of uh, attention to detail is amazing, and props to Andy Serkis, as always, is Caesar. Uh, but Reeves really focuses on Caesar and his journey, and you really bring up a lot of sympathy and empathy for these apes and the fact that the humans are the ones who are the villains, and they're driven by rage and uh, psychotic means. And Woody Harrelson, excellent, as always. He plays the colonel. A lot of shades of uh, Colonel Kurtz. I read a couple of reviews, and I think they're right about the fact he uh, shades of Apocalypse Now, Marlon Brando's famous character. And the fact he's gone rogue and he gives one monologue about violence and why it's important to him. Steve Zahn as Bad Ape offers some uh, comic relief as well. Uh, so check out War for Planet of the Apes. Like I said, great special effects. I appreciate the fact they focus on character over plot. I did think the ending could have used a little bit more bang. You know, I think if you're going to focus on the apes and build up the sympathy for them, you know, when it comes, when it comes time for the reckoning, I want to see some solid hoo-ha. But it wasn't quite to that level, but I still thought it was worth seeing. So check out War for the Planet of the Apes, Two and a Half Maple Leafs. I also saw Billy Flynn's Long Halftime Walk. That's a movie that came out last year, last November, and that was thought to be, I'm sure if we went back and looked at Goldery, that was going to be a big Oscar contender. Uh, the book is supposed to be fabulous. I have not read it, but it was directed by Ang Lee, who, of course, did Brokeback Mountain and Life of Pi, and he's a well-respected director. And it's a story of a group of veterans coming back from the Gulf War attending a Dallas Cowboys game. And they're there for the game and for the halftime show, which Destiny's Child is performing. By the way, they have the music of Destiny's Child, but they just they shoot to whoever. They're supposed to be Beyonce. Beyonce's doppelganger. You just see the blonde hair and the music and the rest of it, but it is not actually Destiny's Child in the movie. But it's their music going away. And uh, so the soldiers are just there, uh, you know, to offer support. And, and basically what the movie reveals is that it's just a big dog and pony show, right? They're trying to uh, create some support for... The Gulf War, so you fly back some soldiers, and they're going to go back to war right after this. So uh, Billy Flynn is going through, you know, a cavalcade of emotions. One, he's happy to be back in Texas, Texas boy, but he's also having flashbacks um, to what happened overseas and, you know, all the pain and the drama that's, that's happened to them in the Gulf War. So it's a war film because obviously it's showing what's happened to these guys, but at the same time you're trying to show human interest and human drama as well. And, you know, he, he has an attraction to... Uh, cheerleader as well and kind of goes back and forth in that direction so the main reason i wanted to watch it is that i was like well how did this movie go from being an oscar contender to not anything worth even mentioning and even some of the oscar boards originally had said at least steve martin will get nominated for best supporting actor now steve martin plays a jerry jones type in the movie so it's just funny to see steve martin who obviously i'm sure has nothing in common with this kind of a character but he's this rich texas tycoon and he's got the southern accent and he's basically using these soldiers for a potential movie about them so it's just interesting to see Steve Martin in a movie like that. But um, as good as he is in the movie, it just doesn't really come off as all that rewarding. You know, I, I do appreciate the fact that they tried to make it into a character study, but it's not one that, that justifies, I think, the uh, the attention to detail involved with names like Ang Lee 
and um, and the kind of talent there. Here's the way that was shot, by the way. Owen Gleiberman, our friend from Variety, he really liked it. And the reason why is the film was shot in 3D at a speed of 120 frames per second. That's five times that of an ordinary movie. So he also shot it with a 4K resolution. The result of these combined radical departures from conventional filmmaking technology. And there's a much higher and more granular level of visual data packed into each and every frame. What this means for the audience, or at least for the audience that can see the film in this format, is that the images in Billy Lynn have an astonishing clarity and physical presence. Now, I've got to say that the version I watched on my cable package on DirecTV did, did not seem to have any sort of different resolution. So maybe if I'd seen the film in the theater, I could appreciate it more. Um, if anything, there's a lot of close-ups, a lot of shots of the characters talking to the camera. You remember Jonathan Demme did that in the movie Philadelphia, the famous scene where Hanks gets fired. He goes, excuse me, am I being fired? He's looking dead on at the camera. Of course, Marty did it in Goodfellas at the end where Ray Liotta talks to the camera. So there's a lot more shots of that, like Steve Martin's talking to the soldier and he's talking right into the camera. Um, but I didn't necessarily notice the, the technical virtuosity. If anything, <laughs> Steve Martin in close-up looked a little bit kind of blotchy and pasty-faced. I was like, oh. so. And I think Gladman even mentions, he goes, some actors may not like this format because it really kind of shows their face the way it should be. No disrespect to Steve Martin, obviously. He's advanced stage at this point. But interesting movie. Did not necessarily work for me. I'm giving it two Maple Leafs. Um, at least only tried something different. But, and, but I was curious to see why it was not a huge success. Kristen Stewart, by the way, plays his sister in the movie. She's fine, but nothing notable there as well couple more for you. Um, Ricky Gervais, I think he's one of the funniest guys alive. David Brent, Life on the Road, Netflix movie, came out last year. Unfortunately, not nearly as funny as The Office. I'm only giving it two Maple Leafs, and that's only because Ricky Gervais is so funny. The character's great because he's just so obnoxious, and he's so politically incorrect. But this is an example of a really funny character who's not in a funny plot. The story is that now he's been fired from his job as The Office, and now he wants to be a singer, and now he's on the road. So it's like a poor man's British version of pop star. Like, the songs aren't really as good as, as Andy Samberg did in Popstar. And, I mean, he's still politically incorrect. He's still, you know, messing around like a overweight prostitute. He's still got moments of, like, insulting Native Americans. Like, there's still some humorous moments because Gervais plays the character so well. And, and by nature, uh, his obnoxiousness lends to humor. But as a story, it just wasn't enough there. And for a Netflix movie, again, The Office, part of what makes it so funny is 22 minutes. And it was only six episodes. Like, The Office was only two seasons, six episodes each, plus a movie. For an hour 36 of, of David Brent, really doesn't live up to the hype. Unless you really love Ricky Gervais, which I do, and I don't regret watching it. I'm only giving it two Maple Leafs. He does have a couple of good bits about his weight uh, when he used to be called Brentosaurus, which is really funny. Uh, but David Brent, Life on the Road, Netflix, not one to... Uh, endorse for me and lastly we're going to talk more about this movie next time because we're hoping to have namdi asamo on if you're wondering who that is or perhaps you're a football fan saying i know who namdi asamo is the former corner for the raiders and the eagles he's now a producer and actor and his passion project is a movie called crown heights which is a movie that i'm recommending um it's available right now in limited release so you'll start to see it more i think come september but we're going to hopefully have namdi asamo here on cinephile to talk more about the movie um, but the best compliment I could pay is it brought to mind uh, the great miniseries The Night Of, which I love so much. Here's a story synopsis. In the spring of 1980, a teenager is gunned down on the streets of Flatbush, Brooklyn. The police pressure a child witness to identify a suspect. As a result, Colin Warner, an 18-year-old kid from nearby Crown Heights, is wrongfully convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. Colin's childhood friend, Carl Casey King, devotes his life to fighting for Colin's freedom. That's Namdi Asimov's character. He works on appeals, takes loans for lawyer fees, becomes a legal courier to learn the court system. This incredible true story is adapted from the acclaimed This American Life segment by writer-director Matt Ruskin with Lakeith Stanfield playing Colin Warner. He's terrific. Brings to mind shades of uh, Denzel Washington and the Hurricane and Namdi Asimov as Carl King. Make sure you check it out. Um, I thought it really did a good job of showing particularly that main character, just that mix of bewilderment and humiliation and rage. Um, we've seen movies before about a character wrongfully imprisoned, but the fact that it's based on a true story lends it real-life pathos. And uh, I thought they pushed to the negative elements of this guy's life to actually offer up some level of a redemptive feel. So check out Crown Heights. It's coming to theaters soon. We'll talk more about it on the next edition of Cinephile. Enough yakking for me. Let's hear from Jeremy Renner right now. You're listening to Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast, and they're thrilled to have Jeremy Renner with us, his new film, Wind River, in theaters tomorrow. Jeremy, first and foremost, I understand you're playing Hurt. What happened? <laughs> That's how it goes, man. Uh, I busted my arms uh, uh, in, this, in this movie I did this summer. 
I guess that is part of the hazard of the job, right? Like, how does that work in terms of doing stunts? Are you somebody who's fearless and just says, you know, give me the ball and run with this? Or yeah, you got, you got a, you got a great. The director says, listen, I prefer if you do it yourself for for whatever reason. Well, I don't think any nobody's going to ask me to to do something that that I'm not comfortable with, and I'll always push myself to do something. Um, if I can do it, sure. Just for it's better for audiences, better for editing, better for everything to uh, for, for me to do it. But uh, it was a stunt, and the stunt team prepares things very well. And uh, it was just the, the stunt rig sort of sort of broke, and I broke along with it. So I totally hear you. Uh, Wind River coming out first and foremost. Tell us about the film. Yeah, the, the movie's uh, coming out uh, this weekend, which I'm pretty excited about. It's uh, Elizabeth Olsen and myself, a really great cast. Um, movies. Um, Essentially, a thriller it takes place in um, in Wyoming in the Wind River Indian Reservation, and uh, I play a, a tracker, a hunter that discovers a girl's dead body, and that I end up knowing. And um, Elizabeth's character plays an FBI uh, federal agent uh, to come in and help. She hires me to help solve the crime. So definitely an intense film. Well, what was it about the the um, was it the subject matter that appealed to you, or what was the um, the collaborative effect of it? I, well, I think it was a very interesting world. Is always is when I first look at um, in, in stories uh, to tell. It was a uh, just a beautiful sort of landscape, um, and it's you know it's a very cold, uh, high altitude environment. Um, so it was a really interesting world to tell tell the story, and um, then there's a lot of the sort of personal things that were important. I mean, working with Elizabeth again, because um, we did on the Avengers, and um, and the script was fantastic. The characters were, were deep and rich. You mentioned the Avengers, and of course, I have so many uh, fanboys, Jeremy, who have questions they want to ask you, so I apologize. <laughs> My friend Kerry Chow says he wants to know, how come you have infinite arrows in the Avengers movies? How do they regenerate? <laughs> they're not infinite. They're... they're <laughs> Yeah, the sort of packs that, that slide on, slide off have, you know, I don't know, a buck fifty or something in there. <laughs> and, yeah. and actually, what's, each, it, what's it like being in a movie like that, though? I mean, The Avengers is such a huge, uh, big-scale movie for you. What was that experience like? Um, there's, I mean, they're so fun, man. There's, uh, it's, it's, it, the cast makes makes that experience the best when you have um, – and the cast is actually growing. They're like gremlins. It's crazy. It's so many of them. Um, but it's uh, – so much fun hanging out with the guys and gals on uh, on that picture, for sure. I start up again on Monday, I think, in Atlanta. That's great because, you know, I always wonder, like, everyone's always got a favorite superhero and they're competitive. Is there any kind of friendly competitiveness on set with you guys as far as, you know, hey, I'm, I'm the cooler superhero compared to Iron Man or whatever? No, I, I, mean, I think yeah, there's this more uh, uh, suit envy. Um, <laughs> Some some people have have it takes about a half hour to go take take a leak. You know what I mean? And right, some people right. are, are sweating, <laughs> sw- and they're sweating. They, they'll have like the, these hoses inside their suit, and they, and they have to have, but they have to drag around like this little mini fridge to cool down the, the hose, the water in the hoses in the suit, because they can't take the thing off so easily. It literally takes you know four, four people to get it on, and or like poor Paul Bettany, that sucker. You know he's got to be in makeup. <laughs> he plays Vision. Yeah, he's got to be in makeup for I don't know how many hours and then put on that, that outfit. He's one of those guys that has to have, like, the, the tubes running through his, his onesie. And uh, <laughs> I think he might even have, like, a colostomy bag in there, too. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> but mine, I'm a, you know, I'm a, right? For anybody I'm a, out there, I think that's an easy gig. This is what you got to go through. <laughs> no, yeah, my suit's easy. So I, you know, so there's definitely a lot of suit envy. Usually when it comes to, 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 to my gear, because I'm just like a boots-on-the-ground kind of guy, and zip up, zip down, let's go. <laughs> yeah, meat and potatoes. Jeremy Renner's new film, Wind River, is coming out in theaters. Make sure you check it out. In the Hurt Locker, you said that, there's a quote that I read that you said, there's a lot of me in there, a sense of humor, a man of few words, and yeah. a lot of action. You yeah. know, so many of us are taken with the film Dunkirk right now, and you think about great war movies. And, of course, that film, The Hurt Locker, with which you starred, won Best Picture, obviously Catherine Bigelow yeah. received all those honors for Best Director. Is that accurate, that, you, that that character was someone that you could relate to on a personal level? Yeah, in, in, in a lot of ways, for sure. I mean, some characters are, are much closer to me personally than than, than others. Uh, Wind River, the Corey, is also one that's very, very close to kind of who I am. Um, just in sort of the same sort of thing like, like Will James was in The Hurt Locker, that sort of doer and 
man a few words type of thing, yeah. And what was Catherine Bigelow like to work with? I mean, just to, to see her film, it's obviously so visceral. What was it like for you to obviously be there in the trenches? It's, you know, it's it's a wonderful experience, really, because she's, she's so trusting in, it was in me and everyone around her. Um, she's kind of more of a, of a painter in her, in her mind as a filmmaker. You know what I mean? She's, uh, mm-hmm. she's kind of an observer and... Um, I didn't see her a whole lot when we were shooting it, you know, because we're in the we're in the Middle East, and she had these this lot of long lenses, and um, but her attention to detail was was uh, really on point, I, I think, on that film. Well, speaking of attention to detail, I wish I was there with you in studio, but I'm actually back home in Canada. And speaking of Canadian, the director Denis Villeneuve, we are yeah. all beaming about because he directed you in the film yeah. Arrival, and I think he's just this this wonderful filmmaker. And I love that movie and your performance in it, and Amy Adams. Tell me about Arrival, because I mean that's one of these science fiction movies that's like you know it has that title, The Thinking Man Sci-Fi. Like it's it's bigger than what you think it is. And it was a really smart approach to the movie. Yeah, it really, really was. I mean, it, with the the script felt so intimate with the storytelling but as soon as it's the only movie I, I i saw after we shot it and i'm like oh my goodness that's a that's a director right there. I, I couldn't believe how big and expansive and beautiful it was visually um without losing the the intimacy and the um the character uh, along with it because that does happen from time to time with, with directors um, yeah, Denise is like one of the, the, the smartest, most emotionally intelligent guys. So soft-spoken, so, such a beautiful, beautiful man. He's—I uh, think he just completed Blade Runner as well, didn't he? Um, but yeah, Denis Villeneuve, man, he's a fantastic. Fan. He's actually the one that got me to do Wind River. One of the guys. He's like, please, 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 uh, you must read uh, the script because <laughs> Taylor, because he because he, he directed Sicario that Taylor Sheridan wrote. Right. Um, that who also then ended up, ended up directing Wind River. No, you're right. He uh, the film Ensemble is a French Canadian movie he made. Obviously, prior to Arrival, it would just blew my mind. I'm like, all right, hopefully this guy can break through. And you're right. Now he's doing Blade Runner, so obviously yeah. uh, bigger and better away. The yeah. Town. I loved your performance in that movie. And Ty Burr, who's a terrific critic for the Boston Globe, he loves old movies. And in his review, he said. In terms of gangsters and gangster films, Affleck is doing Bogart and Renner is straight up Cagney. I have to know, was there any homage to James Cagney in your performance? You were so good in that movie. Oh, wow. No, I, I didn't, I didn't re- read that. I usually don't read that kind of stuff anyway, but that's nice. Yeah, Cagney's, Cagney's a monster, man. I like, like that dude. Uh, but there was no, like, um, I mean, maybe maybe Ben had it in his mind, but I, I took guys that, that were living in Charlestown that, and... Uh, you know, based upon guys I met. So, Another quote that you said, I like repressed characters. That gives me a lot of freedom to make a lot of different choices than subtleties. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's when, when, ultimately there's a, that there's a lot going on underneath the sheen of, of, of you know, any look of, or of, of feeling. And the, ultimately the uh, kind of inner sort of, turmoil or rep- any sort of repression the stuff that's bubbling a coiled spring if you will and that, that you know like your jam in the town was definitely a coiled spring he's a guy that you'd, you'd much rather him be your friend than your enemy um but with you know good or bad intentions you know with jam but, um yeah i just i, I kind of like characters that are that are unpredictable and have a lot sort of, of uh, emotional sort of content hiding underneath i, I <laughs> On Howard Stern, he's mentioned you have a 170 IQ. I don't want to stereotype actors, Jeremy, but are you, are you the smartest guy in Hollywood? <laughs> no, no, yeah, he, he, keeps, he keeps running around talking about that stuff. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, yeah, I know I've, yeah, I've been, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing all right. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember the last time you took an IQ test? Yeah, it was, it was, uh, what was it, like probably like a decade ago, maybe maybe 10 years ago. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, I have no idea what mine would be. I just thought it was such a, a random thing. Maybe, yeah. maybe it's um, like attributed to like, you know, because I know a lot of it's left brain, right brain, right? And sometimes they say with actors, it's so artistically focused right brain. But for yourself, maybe you have stronger analytical skills and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Most likely. <laughs> I can tell. You're I, I, a modest I, I, man with a 170 <laughs> IQ. We will enjoy the films. Jeremy Renner's new film, Wind River. Obviously, the films have been so good over the years. The Hurt Locker, The Avengers, The Town. Really appreciate the time, man, and enjoy ESPN today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. 
Dunkirk Showcase. <laughs> Still talking about Dunkirk here. The laugh riot that was Dunkirk. I love that part, The Naked. It's like uh, The Naked Cut's obviously one of my favorite movies, but I love that scene where they just show <laughs> Platoon. They just see the sign platoon as they're walking in the theater. And then you see Leslie Nielsen and Priscilla Presley just cracking up. We should have done that. Just a bunch of us laughing after walking out of Dunkirk. Somebody had tweeted in, how about Joaquin Phoenix for Actor Studio? Okay, why not? Let's get it done. So i, I got to be honest. I, I like him. He does not have a ton of movies, though. This is actually like a, a really easy top five list. Number five, I could put in To Die For, the Gus Van Sant film, uh, Nicole Kidman. But actually, I'm going to go off the rails. This isn't even a movie because I'm just going to go best performances. And I never saw the actual movie it was based on, but I'm going to fade number five. It's his appearance on Letterman when he was in character for the Casey Affleck movie, which is like one of the greatest performances ever by a guest on Letterman. If you haven't seen it, Google Joaquin Phoenix on Letterman because he was playing type like he was pretending for this Casey Affleck documentary that he was giving up acting to become a rapper. And he stays in character the entire time. And Letterman is just befuddled because he's like, this guy is just a mess. It's so funny to watch. I'm Still Here was the name of the documentary, which I have not seen. But, um, I mean, if you tweet, I just, I just tweeted, Joaquin Phoenix's Letterman disaster. That's on YouTube. And afterwards, Joaquin Phoenix apologized to Letterman because it was just such a bizarre performance. And he said, I hope the spoof didn't offend you. But I'm telling you, the comedic value of it, and it shows the greatness of Letterman, how well he handled the fact that Joaquin Phoenix was just not there. It's I believe so Letterman says, well, I wish you showed up. Yeah, at the end he says something like, oh, yeah, you're right. I can't remember exactly, but something to the effect of, yeah, I wish you'd been hurt too. Number four is her. I didn't love the movie. I remember, you know, some people love it. I think it's got like a 93% or something on Rotten Tomatoes. I thought it was a little forced. It's not to say that, uh, you know, virtual reality sex dolls aren't on Vogue these days, but I just thought, come on, the, the entire movie, like, the music starts crying about this robot doll. <laughs> come on, man. Um, but it was a really uh, good performance from him, obviously, to, to be able to dedicate yourself to being in love with Scarlett Johansson's voice, which maybe is not as tough a proposition as you think about it, uh, did involve some strong acting chops on his part. So I'll give it up for her at number four, even though I was not a huge fan of the movie. I do respect his performance, which he was nominated for. Number three is Gladiator, great villain by Joaquin Phoenix, just a just a sniveling <laughs> sniveling coward, villainous character. Loved him in Gladiator. Number two is The Master. You talk about just an unhinged character. I mean, he's he actually fits the music of that movie. You know, think about Paul Thomas Anderson, the music he puts in his movies. Like, if you had to put the soundtrack of The Master into human form, you would use Joaquin Phoenix. He's just so odd and just so idiosyncratic and eccentric and just off. I mean, that entire movie. It's just so unbalanced. I mean, I think it, it has its flaws. I don't particularly like the ending. It goes on and doesn't really find a resolution. But I love two-thirds of it, and I love Joaquin Phoenix's performance, along with Philip Seymour Hoffman. And, of course, P.T. Anderson's one of our best directors. So always his work is um, intriguing for me. But, yeah, I, God, I loved his performance. He's just so unhinged in that movie. And number one, of course, is a slam dunk. Walk the line. Tremendous performance as Johnny Cash. Everyone always gives it up for Jamie Foxx's Ray Charles. He didn't sing the music. You know what I mean? He lip synced. Like, it was a good performance, but he's lip syncing. Joaquin Phoenix actually sang the music. You know, that's him uh, not only channeling Johnny Cash, but singing the words of Johnny Cash. And love the relationship between him and Reese Witherspoon. I know Dan loves her work as June Carter Cash. She was perfect and won an Oscar for Best Actress, directed by James Mangold, of course, one of my favorites. I loved everything about Walk the Line. He shows his transition from being dark and tortured and tormented to finding love with June Carter Cash. It uh, overcomes all the familiar music cliches to really be a powerful movie and a really sweet one as well. Joaquin Phoenix, Walk the Line, his best performance. But not a ton, right? Top five, Danny, when it comes to him? Yeah, I have no qualms about your order because I don't think I could name another Joaquin <laughs> Phoenix movie to put in there. If you didn't have Walk the Line in there, I probably would have punched you in the face. <laughs> I mean, that's clearly his best. And I remember one time you said to me, this was years ago, you said, who do you think stronger in the movie, her or him? And I paused. I think I went him, and you were furious. You go, oh, what? It's, it's not even close. It's yeah. her. It's it's obviously her. Yeah, if you just watch like a clip of June Carter Cash and then watch Reese Witherspoon, like, oh, my God, like it, it is uncanny, uh, her performance in that movie, how great she is. Those are the top five of Joaquin Phoenix. So uh, and we're now at the moment of truth here to see how bad my voice sounded when I talked to Tony Hale I can't believe I've talked to two members of Arrested Development now, Will Arnett and Tony Hale. We asked Tony about Will Arnett and, of course, the show that I love so much. And, of course, for all those fans of Veep, he's been nominated five times for it. Without further ado, here's Tony Hale. 
Joining us now is Tony Hale. He's won two Emmys for his work on Veep. Just coming off his fifth nomination, we'll get to plenty of Veep conversation in just a second. But, Tony, Arrested Development, one of my favorite shows of all time. I almost burst it with spontaneous glee with the fact the show is finally now back. You've moved back then. Tell me all about the fact production is underway, yes? Yeah, we started last week, and it's as insane as ever. Um, I It's very strange to be back in Buster's shoes. <laughs> but it's like really cool, and I, you know, I always get a little nervous, kind of going back, because it's you always hope you can match the expectations. But anytime I can, anytime I get around that that set and those people, and I hear Lucia Walter, who plays my mother's voice, it's just Pavlovian. It just clicks back <laughs> in. <laughs> I, I take such pride, Tony, that I was not in from episode one, but I'd say like episode four or five, I'd had a couple of buddies who were like, dude, you've got to see this show. So what happened it's was crazy. I felt, right? I was in for the whole journey. So when everybody started discovering it afterwards, I said, no, you're a bunch of posers. Like I knew how funny this show was when, when you guys won the best series Emmy for the first season and Mitch Hurwitz said, hey, please start watching us, right? We don't want Fox to cancel us. Like I, I felt your guys' pain when the show was, was kind of prematurely pulled away from us, but then the fact it came back later. What's that journey been like for you to do a show that I'm sure you realized was brilliant, but people weren't recognizing it until years after the fact? Yeah, it was, I mean, I thought it was funny. We all thought it was funny, but, like, my parents never thought it was To this day, my parents don't think it's funny. My parents don't get it. They thought it was funny when Martin Short was on. Right. That was, that was like, Nuts. that was funny to them. <laughs> Um, which makes the sun feel great. Um, no, but it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it was, it was a very dense, it is a very dense show. There's a lot of jokes. It's the kind of comedy where you have to, you got to think about it. Yeah. And I think when it started, a lot of people weren't kind of used to, you know, really kind of picking a comedy apart. It was more that with drama. So I think it, you know, it was just a very new genre. And, um, nowadays I think it would have fit in much easier, but back then it was very new. Yeah, like I think about a show like Seinfeld, Tony, in which the first couple of years, right, they kind of defined their footing. And then once season sure. three hit, and then eventually it was like, oh, my God, this is the number one show in America. And it felt so unusual because it's about irony. And they had, a, you know, the contest episode, like Larry David was trying different things. I feel like that with the rest of development, I just feel like if it was a different time and place, we would be talking about seven seasons of Arrest development and 100 episodes and the number one show in America. It just took America time to catch up to what you guys were doing, right? Yeah, and there's a lot. I mean, it's just an insane, it's an insane show. I mean, all of a sudden, it's like very, very. I don't think I've ever had a show. I've never, that's never happened to me. But like the kind of surprises where they come up to you and they, they're like, "All right, by the way, Liza Minnelli is going to be your girlfriend, and a seal is going to bite off your hand." And it's like, "All right, let's let's go for it." <laughs> uh, we're talking with Tony Hale right now. Um, this is so tough to categorize one favorite Buster moment, but for me, it actually comes out right away when I think about it. And that is when <laughs> you're with Will Arnett and Jason Bateman and Portia de Rossi, and you start taking a couple shots at mom. And Will, yeah. right, and Will starts going, and you go, oh, look who's taking shots at the old lady. And then you just rip off a stream of expletives. Tell me everything about that scene. How many takes was it? And please, Tony, it's a podcast. If you want to say the words you were saying, by all means, go for it. Well, I remember I actually, because they, you know, at the, they had to, they beeped it and stuff. And so you didn't really know what I was saying. And they said, so Tony, just kind of riff and cuss and stuff in between this line and stuff. And I remember thinking, I don't know if I have that many uh, cuss words that I can say. <laughs> like, I didn't know how to riff that. So I remember calling my buddy Dusty Brown and being like, hey, Dusty, can you, like, just riff a few uh, lines of expl expletives for me? <laughs> and then he just wrote them down, and I was like, all right, I'll use that. <laughs> so it was – it was. Uh, but, I mean, I think I also probably threw some alphabet in there and just counting just because I didn't know what to say. <laughs> I mean, this is, how many takes did you guys do? Because the, the reaction shots is what sells it because you're just – whatever you're saying is so inflammatory. <laughs> well, that's what was so fun is, like, I don't remember how many takes, but to play a character who is – you know, he's definitely – is not with us most of the time. And the kind of surprise where he's, you know, such a mama's boy, and then he just breaks out into this, you know, manic behavior. 
um, that's what was kind of the, the fun of it because Buster rarely did that. But when he did it, he went full force. Yeah, there's no. And then there was one time where he was holding Franklin the puppet, and he was like, "I, I am hard to know." <laughs> oh, I forgot the line, but it was just this like random, <laughs> random shouting matches that he did <laughs> that were the best play. Yeah, the, the I'm a monster with the hook for a hand is just oh, legendary yeah. as well. Yeah, uh, and the best is he didn't realize he was a monster until he started massaging um, <laughs> Oscar or George or something. And then he's like, wait a second, I've got a hook on my hand, and I'm making this man bleed. <laughs> I love all the actors in it, but, of course, Will Arnett was actually our first guest on Cinephile. He came to ESPN. Oh, sure. He and I are both from Toronto, so we, we have similar stories. Oh, yeah. Up. I know he's a huge Maple Leafs fan. Tell me about Will. What's he like on set? Oh, he's the coolest dude. He's the coolest dude. And he's, he, I will say what I always enjoyed watching over the years. I mean, I, I didn't really watch the episodes over. I think I probably saw them once or two times. And I always like when people come up to me and tell me stuff because I don't really remember it. But I always would watch the gag reels. And <laughs> you can always just see me breaking with Will because, man, he made me laugh. And I just couldn't keep it together. You know, because if, if they're the two characters, us two characters are probably the most polar opposite. And so it's really fun to riff with them. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And it's one of the charms of the show is that I have all my cousins. We all love it. And everybody's got a different character that they love the most. Like Buster's great. Job is so funny. I mean, David Cross is incredible. Oh. Like all the, the oh double entendres, right? How could you guys, you never ran out of material with that character. No, no, no. I mean, and what I loved also is kind of the polar, like everybody kind of got Tobias's humor and Buster didn't. Buster was always like, oh, that's nice. Like, he never he never knew any of the, you know, subtleties that Tobias was talking about. He was he just kind of took it for face value. But the thing is, like, Mitch, who created the show, all of that was scripted. Like, sometimes we would improv, but none of us wanted to improv because what Mitch came up with was so much better than what we could even think of coming up with. So all those kind of, like, subtleties and stuff, he would always come on set and be like, try this, try this, try this. And we were like, yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, it clearly Mitch Sherwood's a really smart guy. The fourth season, Tony, faced some criticism, and the, the only part that I will... Listen, I was just so happy to see you guys together again, and I still thought there were a lot of funny moments. The only criticisms that I thought was valid was just you weren't all there together, and, of course, it's nobody's fault shooting schedules. You guys have all blown up with, the, with uh, obviously, huge successes of your own. In this new season that you're shooting, will there be more scenes together? Yeah, there will. That's definitely going to change. And it's because, I mean, they, it was tough this, and you've probably already heard about this, but it was very tough with scheduling and stuff like that. But what I, again, the brilliance of Mitch Hurwitz is he took the Netflix model since they were all released at once and he made it one big kind of puzzle piece since he couldn't get us all together that much. But this time around, that's definitely going to change and we're all much more together. And, and it's, I, that's what I missed. I miss just having those, you know, scenes together and just, and mainly I just miss watching my friends, you know, cause they're, they're so good at what they do. I just miss being in the same room as them. Yeah. And you mentioned your, your chemistry, especially with mom. Like I, as I mentioned, those characters, oh, like, man. I think the red, those ones always come out. Everybody always mentions Joe Buster Tobias, but I think Jessica Walter's brilliant. Oh, I think brilliant. she's so underrated on that show that the shot oh, she, she takes at, at Portia Durazzi's weight, all this Ooh. stuff with you, it's great. Oh, how dysfunctional though when I'm sucking smoke out of her mouth and then blowing it out the window, <laughs> blowing it out the door in this past season. I think that took this that took codependency to a whole new level. Like I don't think I've ever seen a picture of it like that. <laughs> um, what? When? I know it's 2018. Is it? We're hoping sometime next year it'll come out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I have no clue, but yeah. I mean, I think. Would you say 20? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Probably. Right. Yeah, definitely. You're shooting. I mean, again, I, 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 of course, get all my news from the Internet, so you'll know more than I do. So I have no idea. Uprocks.com. We'll find out when the rest of the development will be coming yes. out soon. Uh, we're talking with the really funny Tony Hale. Of course, he's coming off his fifth nomination for Veep. You've won twice for it. Like I said, as you can tell, I, I adore Arrested Development so much. I did not watch Veep initially, but when you won for it, I was so happy because I said, oh, hey, Buster won an Emmy. And now, I, I, you know, I, I felt such a kinship for you. And now I see the, how funny the show is and your character in particular. Is there guys that you model it after, Tony? Like there's somebody, uh, like a PR person, like you're always there to help Selena. You're always helping Julia Louis-Dreyfus, the ultimate bag man. Is there anybody that you patterned yourself after? I don't know if I, I think I just modeled him after a puppy. Like he was just kind of such a, such a needy, just always by her side and didn't, I mean, my character doesn't have an identity outside of Selena Meyer. 
But w- before we shot the pilot, um, we were able to kind of meet people who did our jobs in, in, around the White House. And I met this guy who's, who had a politician. He was a body man to this politician. And just learning from him, like for, when he was in his 20s, for two years out of his life, he had no life outside of this politician. He, he just had had no social life. He never saw his family. He was constant with this guy. And then he moved on to different stuff. My character is such a mess because he's into his 40s and is still doing that position. He has, no, he has never had a life. And he doesn't really want a life outside of Selena Meyer. So that's where the dysfunction runs deep. <laughs> Any parallels between Buster and Gary? Oh, sure. Yeah, there's definitely an anxiety through line. Um, but it's, well, the great thing is it's the, the difference is it's fun to play the differences because Buster is so paralyzed with fear. Like he just will. I mean, it, it takes a lot for him just to get to the pharmacy. But I mean, uh, Gary, Gary <laughs> definitely steps up for Selena and can hold a job and he will defend Selena. I don't know if Buster would defend his mother. <laughs> I, I think he would take care of him. He would try to take care of himself. How do, how do you go from doing a show which is so smart and so satirical, and then all of a sudden Trump becomes president, and you guys go, hang on a second. Right? We're, we're going to go to a different level. How, how, how did you guys react? Um, uh, It's wild. I mean, it's wild when you're doing a show, and then what's happening on the news tends to be crazier than what the writers have written. Um, and many times we've, the writers have written something that has actually kind of happened, which is surreal. Um, but it's, the, I think, cause I've, I've been asked a lot about kind of how, how do you deal with, and I will say the good thing is this past season, she was out of the office because she lost the presidency and then she was kind of back to being a civilian. And so it was nice to not be in the presidency this past season because we just couldn't compete with what was happening on CNN. I mean, it was its own political comedy. Um, so I mean that was that was kind of a, a, a hidden gift, um, but it's wild. I, when people say like, "How do you do it?" I, I kind of, "How do you watch the news?" And I say, you know, sometimes it's hard to laugh at what's happening on the news because it can be so intense and you can't believe what's happening. Just come and laugh at our show. You know, just <laughs> let it out on our show. But like specifically the Scaramucci thing, I'm like, how? Like, this sounds like something Ooh. out of Veep. How does this actually happen? I know that's what's so. That's what's wild. And I've always prided our show with, um, you know, that we kind of show what's happening behind the scenes. Like, I think typically with politicians, you kind of just hear the perfect sound bites and you hear the perfect speeches and all this kind of stuff. And we kind of take you behind the, you know, behind the curtain a little bit. And you kind of see that these people are very insecure and the screaming matches and all that kind of stuff. Um, nowadays, it feels like all that stuff is out front. <laughs> Now it's like nothing seems to be behind the scenes. Like people have no game face anymore. They just like put it out there. Yeah. That's a little wild. Uh, Speaking of ensemble cast, obviously a ton of talent on that show as well. And Julia Louis-Dreyfus, tell me about her. What's it like working with her? Oh, she's the coolest. She is one of those people that is, um, you know, whoever's kind of the star in the show really sets the tone for the show. And I'm so thankful because she is set. Because, I mean, sometimes you have stars that are kind of arrogant and fool themselves and, you know, you're walking on eggshells, and it just creates a very tense environment. It's just the opposite with Julia. She's incredibly free and kind, and she's a team player, and everybody's throwing in ideas. And that is, like, what you want. Because, I mean, the other stuff just sucks creativity out of a room, and this is, like, it just feeds creativity. So that I'm really thankful for her. And she's super cool. The business is not her first priority. Her family's her first priority. She's normal. And so I've, it's, a, it's been an absolute joy. I hope you win one more Emmy for it. But before we let you go, Tony, tell me about the fact you're going to meet Clint Eastwood's new movie. How crazy is that? Yeah, I was just, I was just there a day. But, like, you know, <laughs> I, was, I was playing the, 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 this gym teacher on this movie. But just to kind of talk with him and, and be directed by him, you're kind of having these out-of-body experiences. Where you're like, oh, hello, Clint Eastwood. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> you know, it's a little, it's a little surreal. How great would it have been, like, he starts making a Lucille Austero reference to you? <laughs> I, think I, would, I think I would probably lose it. I would be kind of like, all right, that's, I, can, I can die now. Uh, sorry, one more. I saw you wrote a children's book. Tell me about that. I did. I did. I wrote a children's book called um, Archibald's Next Big Thing, and it talks about this little chicken. It, what it talks about is I think I've been in this business for so many years that I found myself always looking to the next thing and missing where I was. 
And so it's about a little chicken who gets a card in the mail that says your big thing is here. And he's like, where? And he goes on all these adventures looking for his next big thing. And this bee travels around with him and it's like, hey, you got to just be, man. You got to just be. And then in the end, he realizes that the card is right, that your big thing is right here. It's not somewhere else. And so it was a really fun to do. That's great, man. I, I love seeing someone like yourself, somebody who obviously has a lot of talent and a lot of passions, and you're able to use that in different forums. Congrats again on the nomination for Veep. I'm sorry that I sound like Zsa Zsa Gabor. No, are you kidding? I, I want you. I think you need to go get a throat lozenge. So that's intense, man. I, I, you know, it's, a good, hey, it's a good excuse now. I, I'll take some days off work. I can go back and watch uh, Arrested Development all the way okay, from the beginning. Perfect. <laughs> Full circle. Perfect. Thanks so much, Tony. Appreciate you, man. All right. Thanks. Have a great day. A Scorsese story. I, I still cannot believe your cousin Colin has Shutter Island as his favorite Scorsese movie. Like, that's astonishing. I don't know what to tell you. He's a unique guy, that Colin Mean. Big fan of the podcast, as is his wife, Meg. Shout out to Love Meg and Colin. Could you find one person, if I gave you a day, find me one person you know that would say Shutter Island's her favorite Scorsese movie. Unbelievable. I mean, I liked it, but I was like, oh, I'm still. It's been stuck. like two weeks, you're still thinking about it. <laughs> my goodness. <laughs> yeah, I said to my brother, because he has it number five. My wife goes, maybe top five. And then I challenged her, and she started listening. And I go, yeah, there you go. She had Goodfellas ahead of it. She had Wolf of Wall Street. She can't count. I go, Shutter Island's maybe seventh for her, and I don't even have it top ten. Where would Shutter Island be on your top top? Uh, oh, range? I don't know. Right? It's not even top ten. Yeah, probably not. But, I mean, your brother loves comic book movies, so I'm surprised <laughs> he didn't try to sneak one of those in there in the top five. <laughs> if Marty did a comic book movie, that would be his favorite. Uh, I get some uh, good-natured criticism from my friend James Duthie. Check out his podcast. James, for those who do not know, here south of the border is like the uh, I don't know, Bob Costas of Canada. He does everything. He does everything well uh, for TSN, and he does the Rubber Boots podcast. So my boy Puffy, of course, is tight with James. They always do the podcast. And recently they had mentioned me, and James had mentioned uh, the fact that he, he likes my work and uh, appreciates Cinephile, but... The, the Marty bias is just so off-putting. He said, like, he goes, Adam Sandler could be in a movie. And then my friend Puffy said, and Verk would say, oh, Sandler's never been better due to the direction of Scorsese. So just for Duffy, I'll point out Marty's worst project. Okay, this is the worst thing Martin Scorsese's ever done. And that would be the TV show Vinyl <clears throat> on HBO, came out last year. I remember being so excited because I thought he did a good job with Boardwalk Empire, uh, which Marty directed the premiere. And Bobby Cannavale was so great, uh, won an Emmy for his performance. Steve Buscemi played the lead. Uh, I thought the show kind of petered out. Like, there's a reason it's not like seven seasons of Boardwalk Empire. It was only really good for a couple seasons, then they, they ended up canceling after three or maybe four seasons. But I did enjoy it. You know, it's about Prohibition era gangsters, so it's kind of my I don't favorite. know how you haven't mentioned this yet. Michael Shannon's in it. Oh, Michael Shannon. Yeah, of course. Oh, Michael my Sh- goodness. Michael what Sh- took you so long? You're right. Michael Shannon is unhinged, as always, and is the best part of Boardwalk Empire, along with Cannavale. Uh, but Marty did a good job with that, and uh, Terrence Winter was the collaboration. Terrence Winter was a big part of The Sopranos. So I hear on vinyl they're hooking up again. Terry Winter, Marty, and Mick Jagger are going to be involved as well. Instead, though, it's a terrible flop. It's canceled after one season, and you say, what possibly could have happened? And I try to be uh, defensive. I say, well, maybe Marty wasn't that involved. But no, he directed the premiere, and uh, it was god-awful. And you watch it, and it features Bobby Cannavale, who I love, one of my favorites. And the and the show is about 70s-era rock and roll, and it is like literally a Saturday Night Live sketch of a Martin Scorsese movie. Loud Rolling Stones music, bunch of drug use, quick cuts. It's like literally as if Marty was just parodying himself. Like it was just Marty on autopilot. And there's nothing fresh or original or inventive about it. It feels completely played out. I watched one episode. It was a two-hour debut episode, and I said, that's it. I'm out. I'm not going to watch the rest of it. And it was canceled after one season. I don't even know how many episodes it was. I think you know, normally an HBO show, eight episodes, ten episodes. I don't even know if they ran them all. I think they ran them all, but I think after, like, episode four, they announced, hey, uh, there will not be a second season. This is it. Matt Berry, not Matthew Berry, but Matt Berry, the sports anchor, loved it. I remember after two episodes, he was, he was tweeting about it. I go, it's, it's awful. I watched one, and that's it. I'm not going to watch another second. John Butchergrass had my back. Barry's like, no, you got to keep watching. It's really good. And I was praising the OJ show. And he goes, oh, you'll watch the OJ show and not Vinyl? I go, Vinyl's horrific. I can find anybody who doesn't love the OJ show. Sarah Paulson and John Travolta, et cetera. Uh, so Vinyl's the worst project Chris says he's ever done. And here's the most damning indictment of it. 
Ray Romano's in it. By the way, Ray Romano, great in the big sick, right? The movie I keep talking about, The Irishman, Pacino, De Niro, Keitel, Pesci, Cannavale, and Ray Romano's in the cast. Marty loves him. I can't wait to see what Ray Romano's going to be in this movie, which I'm expecting to be the greatest movie of all time. But the reason they become friends is because Marty cast Romano in vinyl. And he's terrible in it. Like It's just like, why is Ray Romano in this show? But the worst part of it, Andrew Dice Clay is in vinyl. I never thought Andrew Dice Clay would be in a Martin Scorsese-affiliated project, and he's as bad as you would think. He was all right. Remember the Woody Allen movie? Was it Blue Jasmine? Dice was pretty good in it. And you're like, oh, maybe this guy can actually act a little bit. I mean, he's playing a blue-collar worker, tough guy. It wasn't like it was a stretch. But if you watch Dice Clay and Vinyl, I mean, that is shocking that Scorsese even cast him, even directed him, and then even after watching the footage was like, yeah, this is fine. Like, that's where he should have just cut him out. George Clooney's got a new movie coming out. It's going to be at TIFF. This must be extraordinarily difficult to do. He cut out Josh Brolin's character. He watched the movie and goes, you know what? I can't have Josh Brolin in the movie. Can you imagine him calling Josh Bowen going, hey, thanks for all your effort. Two months on set. I'm taking your entire character out of the movie. That's shocking to me. That takes a lot of guts. And Marty should have done that with Andrew Dice Clay and Vinyl. Why is he in this? Even if he'd taken Andrew Dice Clay out, it still would have been a terrible show. The worst project of Martin Scorsese's career. Never watch Vinyl, no matter what you do. Thanks so much for listening to Cinephile. We'll be back in late August once I'm back from Williamsport. There's one theater there, and they show six movies, so I have limited options but I'm going to try to watch Catherine Bigelow's Detroit if it's there. I want to see Steven Soderbergh's new movie, Logan Lucky. So hopefully reviews of that and Namdi Asamoah and some killer guests on the way, Dan. Al- Allison, our friend from the Levitard Show, apparently going to hook us up with some big guests. We confident- well, let's, let's not count our chickens before they hatch here. There, we got a good list of names that we've <laughs> talked about. I don't know if there's any absolute locks on that, but she's going to try and, of course, I should mention, I'm going to be in Los Angeles. Cannot wait. We'll be tweeting about this from Cinephile ESPN. The last Rampage with Robert Patrick and Heather Graham. We'll be tweeting it out once again from the podcast uh, link. But if you go there, you get like 50% off of the tickets if you use the promo code Cinephile. We're going to do a live Cinephile podcast from there. So I'll record the interviews of Patrick and Heather Graham, and then we'll put them on probably in the podcast late September because the movie The Last Rampage is coming out in late September. So we'll do like a special uh, one-hour podcast of it. But hopefully I'll see you in Los Angeles for that. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app.